want to talk with you about something important this morning, and I want to give you a little historical background for something that uh, <clears throat> is probably more important than you realize, but not something that uh, you've probably thought about. This is uh, 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and yes, you are Protestant if you are not Catholic, so that's all of us. Here's the issue. Uh, I think sometimes when we come to worship, we come to worship, you know, this whole come as you are thing is a great thing. It's absolutely true. But sometimes we trample into God's courts like we really by ourselves have a right to be there, and we don't. We come by God's grace. He has made us worthy. We are not worthy in ourselves. Here's the story about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a bright kid, and his um, dad had great ambitions for him because he was smart. Dad hoped that he was going to be a lawyer because it was a good way to make money. And he was hoping that Martin Luther would kind of raise, uh, you know, the family kind of out of the, the uh, quandary of middle age uh, poverty. And uh, Martin had uh, different plans. And, uh, as a young man, felt God calling him to ministry. And if you wanted to go into the ministry uh, at that time, there was really only one route. You were either going to be a monk or a priest. And so he went to, um, I guess, the monkery. And um, they made him a monk. So he goes to monk school and... Uh, he, he gets his monk on, and uh, he, he has this really uh, traumatic experience. Um, and it's all surrounding the Lord's Supper. There's a tie-in here. It's all surrounding the Lord's Supper, because Roman Catholic theology, they believe that once the priest prays, that the, the cup of juice and the cracker that we've got literally become the body and blood of Christ. And that the thing that transforms that is the priest's prayer. So the very first time Martin Luther has the opportunity to do this, it freaks him out just a little bit, and he freezes up. It's kind of like your first time at the plate playing pitch baseball as opposed to t-ball. You're just scared to death. What is going to happen? And he was so overcome by the awesomeness and the just magnitude of who God was that he freaked out, and it was a total fail contrast that kind of trepidation and concern and soul-searching with the way that sometimes we treat the cup and the cracker like it's a VBS snack. It's not good. And so I want to find a way to balance, you know, circumspection and introspection and, and self-examination and the fact that Christ has made a new and living way for us to experience it. There is both freedom, but there's also gravity to it. And I, I want us to talk about that. Because here's the issue. <clears throat> we'll have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes. But I want us to connect a couple things that this is not just an empty religious ritual. It's something that's supposed to give us life and uh, joy as we think about the gospel. <clears throat> and as we think about how we prepare ourselves, how do we not trample into God's courts, but really examine our souls, give praise to God, and yet celebrate the things that we're supposed to. We're reminded that Jesus said that there is one chief commandment that is above all others. Does anybody know what it is? You are too. What? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two is not far behind. Love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> There's a horizontal and a vertical dimension to our relationship both with God and others, and they're connected. You know, you, you see somebody who is completely divorced from the fellowship of the church and they say, you know what, me and God, we're good, we're like that. No, it's a lie. It's a lie. 
Because you can't have it this way and not have it this way. And when there is a relational problem that you're dealing with this way, guess what? Your human relationships will throw an obstacle up. You're, you're not an island. And so we are to be in love with God and in love with other people, at peace with other people, at peace with God, and they both kind of affect each other. The Bible sets the bar really high. As a matter of fact, it says, if you don't love your brother whom you can see, how can you love God who you don't see? <clears throat> good relationships. And not just good. The kind of relationships the Bible wants us to enjoy are not just uh, an effect of a charming personality. They are a fruit of the gospel. Because you know what? People might drive you crazy. Okay? I'll take the laugh. There was an amen. I was going to take the laughter as an amen. S sometimes. Anybody have somebody that drives you crazy? Don't lie in church. All right, I know you, you might. I know you're sitting next to them. That's why you don't want to raise your hand. <coughs> People might drive you crazy. So let me just, let me just turn it around here. Instead of like focusing on, the, on other people, let me focus on you. For some of you, that's a trip around the block. It's not a long trip to drive you crazy. You're already halfway there. You're heading, you're heading down the crazy street at 70 miles an hour. It doesn't take a whole lot. And so it, it's, yes, people will drive you crazy. And yes, you're already halfway there too. It's a problem. But here's the thing that's awesome about the Christian life. You don't have to be able to leap tall buildings in a single bound and outrun a, a, a speeding bullet in these crazy, extraordinary circumstances. The Christian life calls for normal people dealing with normal situations like relationships in everyday kind of ways. God's not asking you to jump off a cliff. He's asking you to glorify him in all these little teensy-weensy little ways that make life life. And you know, here's the deal. You're never going to do the superhero Christian stuff if you can't do the normal Christian stuff. You're never going to give your body to be burned. You're, never gonna, you're, never gonna, you're not going to be a martyr. You're not going to be super spiritual if you can't do the normal stuff. And so the passage that we're dealing with this morning is really important because it's one of those ways <clears throat> where God says, before you do this, you need to make sure this and this is good. The Bible's incredibly careful about saying we should never take the Lord's Supper in what it says is an unworthy manner. It, it says we need to, we need to make sure we're, we're living out what we say we believe. And the problem is, I think that sometimes we just go, this is, our, this is my right. This is my right. Well, it is your right, but there's also a very heavy responsibility that comes with it. And so in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount, where he's talking about discipleship, he talks about uh, the sin of anger. And he talks about it in a very strategic fashion, but yet he also provides some very practical help for living for God's glory and what might be for you and for me a really common problem. Dealing with people, working out reconciliation, really seeking to honor God in our relationships. And so he begins in verses uh, 21 and 22 of Matthew chapter 5 by telling us something that I think we need to know. And it's this, that the emotion, the emotion of anger can very quickly mature into increasingly serious action. Okay, a couple important things here. We're talking about an emotion inside, internal, action, outside, external, and this whole process of sin metamorphosizing into something that it, it, I'm just angry, but then it becomes something else. Listen to what the scriptures say in verse 21 and 22. <clears throat> Jesus says this, 
You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, you fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, he will be subject to hellfire. To begin with, Jesus is not here correcting the Old Testament. He says, you have heard, not it is written. And if he had an issue with something that was written, he would have made that clear. He's getting to the heart of the law. He's not correcting it. He's correcting what people are teaching that are perversions of it, that are not getting at the heart of it. So he's, he's saying, it, you have heard, not it is written. And then he talks about this whole issue of murdering. And I, I'm willing to bet almost every hand in the room could go, well, if that's the measure of righteousness, I'm, I'm in. I, I've never murdered someone. Um, at least I hope not. Um, security. Um, we're proud because we're free of murder. And yet Jesus says it's not enough to be free from murder. We should seek to be free from anger because anger is in principle murder. You're going to murder somebody. It's not like you're like, hey, yo, how you doing? Bow. You know, I mean, there's, there's some anger that is there that like a seed gets nourished. And if you leave it in the soil of your life and you water it and you feed it, it will grow into something else. It won't stay an emotion. Now, it's important for us when we talk about anger, there are different kinds of anger. As a matter of fact, the Bible even says there's such a thing as righteous anger. Here's the problem. You hear that, and then you're tempted to think that every expression of anger that you have had is righteous anger. Everybody else's isn't, but your anger is always right. Um, Not quite true. As a matter of fact, I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of your anger is really probably more self-righteous than it is God-righteousness. Now, even still, there are different varieties. I don't know if you've ever been uh, out in the Midwest where it gets really dry and these, you know, somebody's smoking a cigarette or there's a lightning flash and the grass is really dry and what happens? Whoosh! It's just gone quickly. It's ferocious, it's fast, but if you can hang on for a second, it'll be gone because it'll burn up all the fuel and then the fire has nothing else to burn on. Some of you are dry grass anger people. You're not fun to be around, uh, but just hold on for a little bit, and it'll, it'll go really quick. That's not good. I mean, the Bible would say the anger of man never accomplishes the righteousness of God. <coughs> there are very few situations in which your anger is going to accomplish anything good. You are replaying in your mind right now times that you've been angry that you've messed things up. It's just not good. However, that dry grass, big flash, big boom, you know, big explosion, fire, that's not the worst kind that there is. There's another kind of anger that on the surface looks really easy to deal with, and yet it's much more destructive because it's not the kind that is the big flash, big burn. It's the smoldering variety that lays under the surface for years, waiting to be agitated and turn into an inferno. And so the Bible is saying if you coddle your sin, you are literally playing with fire. It is not good, especially the smolding variety, because it's not momentary like the dry grass anger. It is just being loved and nurtured. And like you can claim it as a, you can claim your anger as a dependent on your tax return. You are saving up for college. You want to see it graduate. You are living with this thing and you're waiting for it to just come back out and gobble people up and The truth is, if you coddle it in your heart, 
hatred in the heart eventually gets into your hands. Eventually, it gets into your hands. Now, it might literally get into your hands as your hand connects with someone's face in a slap or a punch or around their throat because you're angry and you go, oh, surely my anger is not that serious. It's not that bad. Well, the truth is it never stays on the inside. It always finds a way to express itself on the outside. If you have, um, let's pick on daughters. Not my daughters, because they're, they're, they don't ever get angry or roll their eyes. What is eye rolling? Man, just you want to get those eyes straight, take you to the eye doctor. It's frustration. It's anger. You've said something that obviously is way uncool, and they're so frustrated that they want to let you know about it. What are the ways that you manifest your anger? I've seen people get physically sick because they're so angry about something. You know, and, and it's not just a cartoon. When you see the guy with the red face and the veins sticking out, there are ways that your anger will always manifest itself physically. It's not good. There are some people who die because of anger because their blood pressure gets worked up. so It's just like they're going to explode. It finds a way to go from your heart to your hands. So how do you know if you're an angry person? I mean, listen, y'all in church, you look good. Everybody looks good. Some of you smell good, you know. There was a little, uh, I think it was Old Spice in the first service. It was great. I just got to get a little whiff of it, you know. So there's perfumes and deodorants and all kinds of stuff. Y'all look good. You don't look angry. How do you know if you're angry? Well, Jesus gives us a couple examples here, and, and the examples that he gives have to deal with how we talk about people. This is when you're not supposed to make eye contact with the preacher, Okay? How do you talk about people? And here's the thing that's really, I think, damning, is this is not random people. In verse 22, he says, But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother. brother. Now, if you don't have a brother, this is not your get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, I'll only have a sister. Jesus isn't talking to me. No, he's talking about brother or sister in Christ. So like, Anger is beginning to characterize the way that Christians are relating to each other. I mean, how pitiful is that? So how do you talk about others? Here, he says, you call them a fool and a moron. Now, you don't ever do it while they're around. You at least wait till they get out of earshot. And then if you're a Baptist who's grown up in the South, you precede it by, oh, bless his heart. He's a stinking idiot, you know? Uh, you know, that turkey won't even fly in a tornado, whatever that means, you know? Um, that dog won't hunt. I mean, there's all kinds. Of, we got all these little aphorisms for like insulting people. And guys, it's not, it's not good. It's not good. So if I, if I asked you, I'm not asking you to, but if I asked you to say, today, do you need to repent of something that you have said about a brother or sister in Christ? You know how many hands would go up in here? Every single one. So here's the deal. When you're talking about people, two questions that I think are important to ask. Number one, do you recognize that that person that you are sticking the dagger in their back verbally, do you recognize that they are made in the image of God exactly the same way you are? Here's the thing that's so, that's so pompous and arrogant about conservative Bible-believing Christians, is we will fight for the pro-life movement, and yet we will kill people made in the image of God with our words all the time, and it is inconsistent. 
If you're pro-life, then you're careful with your words because just as that baby is made in the image of God, so is the person that you're trying to run over and then put it in reverse just to make sure you got him. You know, let me clarify. He is an idiot. Make sure I squish him good. Do you recognize when you are running people over with your words that they are made in the image of God and that alone makes them precious no matter what you think about them? Number two, do you recognize that because not only are they made in the image of God, but they are redeemed by the blood of Christ, that they are made joint heirs and they are given all of Papa's goods just like you are and you're going to spend eternity with them? Let me just assert that if we really believed that people were made in the image of God and that they were joint heirs with Christ, we'd be a lot, I would hope we would be a lot more careful with what we say about people. This doesn't mean, you know, let's sit around the campfire and sing Kumbaya because we all like each other. No, there's real issues, there's differences of opinion, but we should love each other. That doesn't mean uniformity exists. We're going to have different preferences. I mean, good golly, some of you are going to be Clemson fans, some of you are going to be USC fans, and except for the grace of God, there ain't anything that's going to make you all hang out together. There's just differences, and that's, that's okay. That's okay. Jesus says here that words that dishonor, intentionally dishonor, a brother and sister in Christ, righteously fall under God's judgment. That's it. In World War II, there was a very famous saying that loose lips, all right, if you are under 40, you probably have no idea what we're talking about. If you're on a ship, you don't make noise because then sonar can pick it up and submarines can find it or ships can find uh, submarines, different things like that. You got to be quiet. If Jesus could kind of turn the analogy around, he would say loose lips in the church might prove that your destination is not quite what you think it is. And if you've had the grace of God work in your life and you're running over people with no filter, we need to baptize you again and hold you under until the bubbles stop because it obviously didn't take the first time. (laughs) That's going to be on the CD too. So I don't mean that literally. But the point is something didn't take. I mean, you still feel the right to use your lips however you want. And Jesus' blood died to buy your lips too. It died to buy your attitude. It died to buy your heart. It died to buy it all. And so you might not murder. You might not run people over with you, or you might be an eye roller. You might be a person who gets physically sick. You might be a person, I, I use this analogy, there's nothing going on with Ed. Ed's a good guy. But you might have a conflict with Ed LaRock, and, and, and you don't show up to church anymore because of Ed. It's not that y'all are terrible. It's I got one conflict with one person. I can't go in that church anymore. There are, there are churches that are gathering today that some guy sitting over here and some guy sitting over here haven't spoken to each other in 30 years. And unless, with the exception of them being under the same roof, you would have no idea that they both belong to God's family. We would rather completely ignore someone than actually work out our problems and say, listen, we don't have to agree. We have to forgive. We have to be reconciled. We have to be at peace. There's all kinds of ways. And so Jesus says that what we do with our words, uh, and he's, he's not here. Let me back up here. He says, you know, if you say this, you're going to be subject to the Sanhedrin. But if you say this, you're going to be subject to hellfire. I know automatically you're going, hey, I don't mind the Sanhedrin so much. So what words can I say and get judged by a human court, but not get the hellfire judgment? Jesus is not establishing a hierarchy to say, you can say this, this, and this, and you're okay, but you say this, this, and this, and you're in trouble. That's not what he's doing. What he's, what he's saying is that when you are 
angry, careless with your words, act out your anger when it's flashed out in your actions in some way, it's going to have this life consequences and it's going to have eternal life consequences. It might be the Sanhedrin. You might lose a relationship. You might destroy a relationship. You might murder a relationship. Or it might even be more serious and show that what you say you believe, you really don't believe. That's huge. The problem is it's tough to monitor our anger. You know how you know when you're angry? After you've been angry. Don't you wish that, you know, there was an app on your phone that, like, monitored your blood pressure or something? That, like, you know, warning, warning, you're getting angry. Because when, when anger moves from your heart to your hands, it has the potential to bring devastating consequences. So I want you not only to hear from the Word of God this morning, but I want you to hear a testimony of a man that's learned something about why anger is not a good thing. And so I'm going to ask Henry if he would come and share with us, please, a little bit about what God is teaching him in ways that God is working in his life, and I think that you're going to be encouraged by it. Come on up, Henry. Miss Harry, let me see if I can get this fixed for you. This thing on? Great. All right, you got it. I uh, don't have the right to tell Henry's story, so I won't. But I know this was, I think, a 35-year education, kind of learning how to deal with anger. So here's, here's the challenge. Don't wait 35 years. Henry would say the exact same thing. Don't do it. Because, again, you may never murder someone, but you might destroy a relationship because you're not willing to turn your anger over to the Lord. So you don't want to be a murderer. Your heart is soft to what God wants you to do. What now? Jesus provides two very practical and quick scenarios for us here. The very first one takes place in the temple, and it again deals with a brother in verses 23 and 24 of Matthew chapter 5. He says this, So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus teaches that reconciliation should be a priority even over worship. Now, something to be said here. Henry just demonstrated a tremendous amount of humility by telling you something that you did not know. He gave you a window into something that has been going on in his life for a long time. The point of this passage is not for us to like dismiss our church service and all of you to confess your private sins publicly in front of everyone. That's not the, that's not the, the, that's not the key. Uh, there are some things that are private that need to stay private. Here's something that happened in Old Testament worship that I don't think we're quite so familiar with. Um, the Israelites didn't gather weekly for worship. That's a function of the Christian faith. Gathering every Sunday. When they gathered for corporate worship, it was seasonal. It was in the spring, it was in the fall. They didn't gather regularly uh, every so few days to worship. When they took up the offering, they didn't have plates, they had a courtyard. And whenever you got something that you could donate to the Lord, 
like you would go to the supermarket, you would go to the temple and you would give your offering. And so this was not within the context of a crowd of people in public worship. It was someone who had gotten some money, wants to make an offering to the Lord, and while they're there, they remember, oh yes, somebody's got something. It's not even specified. It's not even called a sin. Somebody has something. Maybe it's a big thing. Maybe it's a little thing. Maybe it's a sinful thing. Maybe it's a misunderstanding thing. But someone has something against me. Let me stop what I'm doing and let me go make things right there before I continue on in worship. The Bible is astonishingly not so concerned with your anger as much as it is encouraging you to be concerned about other people's anger. It's very easy to remember when someone has wronged you and hard for you to remember when you've wronged them. But one of the roles of public worship is to remind us of our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. And when something is out of whack, we are supposed to make reconciliation a priority. Here's the deal. It doesn't say anything about the worshiper who's presenting his offering being angry. As a matter of fact, he seems to be having a pretty good day, except for the fact that when he gets there, he remembers that somebody else has something against him. Here's the challenge. And guys, this is just what stinks. This is put on your big boy pants and just obey what God wants you to do. It's the person who's not upset who has to go to the upset person, which no one in their right mind wants to do. Do you want to go to an upset person? No, because they might tell you what they think about you. But it is the job of the person who's calm, cool, and collected to go to the person who's angry because angry people are not good reconcilers. At least not yet. But the humility that you demonstrate and the desire to glorify God, to love God and to love neighbor that's demonstrated in your going might be the thing to put the fire out. It says, make reconciliation a priority. It's not going to happen without a face-to-face, without talking about it and asking for forgiveness, trying to make restitution. And here's the thing that's crazy. There's an implication here that you, you need to understand. God doesn't want to talk to anybody who's not willing to talk to a brother or sister. Did I say that in a foreign language that makes it hard for you to understand? God doesn't want to talk to anyone who is not willing to talk to a brother or sister. It says it here. Don't go to worship. You make things right. You pursue reconciliation. And just to make it clear, there's other places in the Bible that talk about this. 1 Peter 3, 7, you'll see it on the board. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Guys, listen, it says if we don't treat our wives right the way that Christ would have us treat them, that our prayers will be hindered because of the relational issue that is there. Again, you got to have it right this way in order to have it right this way. Matthew chapter 6, again, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaching us how to pray. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then it goes on two verses later. It says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, Your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. How can you say that you understand uh, the precious gift of forgiveness and grace when you do not extend it to someone else? I don't think grace and forgiveness are ever fully understood in first person. It's always understood as we give it to someone else. As we see our character transformed by the grace of God that allows us to give grace to others. So that's the first example. He's talking about the temple, you know, religious life and dealing with the brother. 
But his last example is quite a bit different. You're not dealing with a brother now. You're dealing with an adversary. And the understanding is that it's probably somebody who's not a believer. And you're not in the temple now. You're getting dragged to court. Look at what the scriptures say in verse 25 and 26. That even conflicts with non-Christians deserve immediate mending. The scriptures say this, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison and I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. I'm not going to call it an old, old wives' tale. I'll call it an old man's tale because it's not, it's not true. Time heals all wounds. No, it doesn't. It just makes you more bitter. If we've got an interaction and we've never made things right, I might not bring it back up, but this is not going to be right until we've spoken the words that we need to speak. And it might look civil, but that's just on the surface of things. It's really something different. And so here's, here's the truth for us. If it's impossible for you to keep your temper, then don't make it impossible to humble yourself to make amends. Here's the deal. If you're a hothead, you better, you better get really good at being humble and asking for forgiveness. It, it kind of comes with the territory. If you've offended someone, you've got to be willing to, to be a hothead and not care what people think. It's just not right. It's just you've got to do it. And the principle is very simple. If, if conflict is taken care of quickly, the negative results will most likely not be lengthy. But when you let time heal all wounds, now you've got more stuff that you need to fix. And the truth is that when relationships go sour, in nine out of ten cases, immediate action would have taken care of the problem. We're so proud. We we, we lack humility. We're not willing to apologize because we've never done anything wrong. And yet the Bible says in Romans 12, 18, that if possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You know what happens when you're at peace with all men? You understand better what it means to be at peace with God. Because God's the only one that can be offended and it's righteous. We've sinned against him. And yet as great as our sins are, he has extended us grace to be forgiven. So we should be able to forgive others. And I think if we don't want to traipse into God's courts to demand our cracker and juice. We need to think about how we're living out and dealing with our anger. Would you pray with me, please? Father, this has been a hard truth. It ha- our hearts have been warmed by this testimony, but we are also very much aware of how within our own heart Anger can flare up so quickly. We know that by how we live, we really do prove what we say we believe. And if we believe in forgiveness, we give it to others. If we think that we need to earn it, then we will make other people earn it. If we believe that it's been freely given, then we will freely give. So Father, I pray that today, as we think about what it means to be a gospel people, who understand that the ground is level with the cross. We are all sinners saved by grace. Would you help us this day to deal with our anger in a way that brings you glory and allows us to worship with a joy that perhaps we've not experienced for a long time. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been reminded of the importance of living out 
what we say we believe. And here's a truth, that living, living for Jesus, living in Jesus, is in some sense, I don't like this word, but a prerequisite to dining with Jesus. The Bible says, if you're not living right, then you need to confess those things before getting involved here. If you're harboring anger, you need to deal with that instead of doing this. Living for Jesus is a prerequisite to dining with Jesus in the Lord's Supper. And so our deacons are going to come forward at this point to help us partake in what is a visual show and tell of the gospel. The body and blood broken for us that we might be forgiven. And we are glad as we go into this to celebrate the new life that we have received in Christ. It is important for us coming to this table to acknowledge that none of us are as good as we should be. None of us. We don't deserve this. We are not worthy in and of ourselves. But the message of the gospel is that through Christ, he makes us worthy to come to his table. And so here, here is the thing. Instead of just being this formality that we go through, we want our remembrance of the gospel and the sacrifice of Christ to motivate within us a repentance like we've seen before us today. You think it takes a smidgen of humility to get up in front of 200 people and say, yeah, I've been a mean, nasty blowhard. It takes just a little bit of humility to say, hey, this is what I've gone through. And, and I'll tell you, that humility doesn't come from inside you. It comes from the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin and saying, you know what? I want other people to learn from my mistakes and I want them to, to learn to not do the same things that I have done. We don't merely apologize. We don't just try to be good boys and good girls. We repent because we truly want to love God, to love others, and to glorify Him through our actions. So here's the major application, Okay. We're not going to call a timeout in our worship service and let you all work out your business. Again, private stuff needs to be dealt with privately. But the idea is here that we have to have the humility to repent. And so will you do that today? I don't know what your situation is. There has been no one that has been in the crosshairs of my sermon except for myself. And you need to ask yourself that question. Who do you need to repent to? Who do you need to make things right with? Because it is hypocrisy to hear the word of God and not to obey it. I want you to be hypocrites. I want you to have the joy that comes from knowing that you follow God and that you are doing what he wants you to do. And it's important for us because the Bible says that we have to make sure that we take the Lord's Supper in a way that is worthy. 1 Corinthians 11 says, As often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup. You are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. A man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. So we invite all scripturally baptized believers who are in good standing with their churches uh, to participate. As the bread is passed, and as we have background music playing, our focus is not to be on the music, but on the heinousness of our sin against a good and loving God and the incredible sacrifice that he has made to buy us back from our sin. Ask God as you are contemplating Christ's sacrifice for you by his spirit to convict you of the things that you need to repent of today. The phone calls that you need to make, the letters you need to write, 
the, and please make it a direct message on Facebook. We don't want to see all your stuff. Um, whatever it is, that's the way that you need to communicate exactly what needs to happen. Because we talk about how grace enables our eyes to see and now we're happy all the day. It's, life is too short to be a miserable Christian. Life is too short to be disobedient. Life is too short to sacrifice relationships because your pride has been offended. Will you ask God for the grace to make today, uh, not, not just right now, a time of worship, but the entire day today as you follow God in obedience?